You're listening to Thinkers What Works podcast. I'm your host, Jason Todd, with my co-host, Alex Gary. And today, Gary Anderson, firm founder and principal architect of Gary W. Anderson Architects here in Rockford. I've got a cool intro that I want to read. Uh, Anderson, you've been a driving force for the revitalization and rebirth of downtown Rockford, which is so true. As an expert in historic renovation and adaptive reuse, he's been given countless hours to the community for this transformation of downtown Rockford from urban blight to a place that is full of life and energy. Also very true. You and your firm have led the way in preserving uh, and, and leading this charge for adaptive building reuse and visionary planning. And we are absolutely excited to have you here on the What Works podcast. I do also need to mention to our listeners and our viewers specifically that the video that you're uh, enjoying today is courtesy of Meeting Owl from Owl Labs. Uh, it is a video conferencing technology that takes a 360 degree view of the room and then dynamically pulls out the speakers uh, onto the screen. So super cool technology and super cool guy we're talking to, Gary. Welcome to the What Works Podcast. Thank you for having me. So architecture, how does one become an architect? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, looking back as to what got me interested, but I remember, you know, riding around with on my bicycle at 11 uh, years old and, uh, you know, looking at construction sites. Yeah. And I remember uh, I used to live by Churchill Park and um, looking at Redeemer uh, Lutheran Church at the time was put an addition on. And I think I watched every brick go up on that thing. And uh, would spend nights uh, after the workers all left to walk through the buildings and to understand how these things went together. And I think uh, that kind of gave me an inkling. Uh, but I, I ended up going into uh, in college um, in civil engineering, of all things, which I found very quickly in the first semester. That was not for me. And uh, I had a friend uh, in the dorm that was in architecture, and that was at SIU at the time. And uh, he, um, you know, I saw him sketching up and talking about architecture. And uh, so I ended up going into architecture um, because of that discussion. He ended up becoming a hairdresser. Uh, <laughs> well, <that's laughs> and had five salons in Chicago. <laughs> um, but uh, I ended up transferring to the University of Illinois, and I think um, – there's Steve Kissick, uh, who was a, a fellow classmate at uh, Rockford East, uh, was in architecture. And he's the guy that really got me interested in uh, historic preservation. And uh, he was talking about all these buildings downtown that, uh, you know, and that was 50 years ago. And it's like yesterday um, and sitting in the studio talking with him about these buildings and his passion for them, one of them being the East Side Center. And uh, when I ended up graduating from uh, the U of I in 71, um, they were the city of Rockford was going to come in and tear that building down, which is uh, a beautiful, you know, Queen Anne uh, building on the corner of State and Madison. And, um, and it was just going to be a gravel parking lot. And, uh, and I could not to see that happen mm -hmm. so contacted the owner and this began my you know development career I guess you might say and um, green as can be about doing this how to go about doing it and I remember you know buying the building on contract and trying to secure some investors and we ended up initi uh, initiating some um, you know demolition of the selective demolition on the interior to, uh, to take out all the rooming uh, all the rooms that were had made it a boarding house basically uh, and it was the original YMCA for the city of Rockford uh, back in 1889 
and uncovered where the pool was, the gymnasium, mm-hmm. and all those things that were, um, you know, and the, the great fireplace that was still there, um, and all the woodwork. The staircases were spectacular, uh, and the attic and the turret. And the, I remember being up in the turret, and there was probably a foot and a half of pigeon crap. And, um, you know, I mean, the most unhealthy place you could ever imagine <laughs> up there. And... Um, but it was with that passion that has certainly uh, dogged me my entire life yeah. uh, that, uh, you know, what can we do to save these buildings? And um, I think that uh, even going to Chicago, doing my own, uh, finding, trying to find tenants and that. And so I got myself immersed pretty deeply into the project. Uh, ultimately, uh, ended up losing the thing back to the original owner. Uh, and it was ultimately redeveloped uh, by a developer out of Milwaukee. And so I think the the work that we did, um, even though it was kind of a loss for me, uh, it was a great learning experience. Yeah. Uh, but it also prepared a building uh, to be redeveloped and really be one of the cornerstones of East 8th Street and uh, uh, and all the future work that we ultimately ended up doing. And um, when I ended up, um, you know, working, I was working for another office and uh, Nolan Smith and Tyson at the time, and uh, I was getting a lot of renovation work um, and uh Plaza 7 over on 7th Street, um, you know, was my first really commercial building that I worked on. Um, But a few years later, the opportunity arose where they really didn't want to do that. And um, uh, as part of the business um, uh, niche, and uh, so I ended up opening my own office. And uh, so um, started with a building in Chicago and then working on the, the Waterside building downtown and of the Rockford newspapers. Uh, <clears throat> I was also doing work for them. And uh, so those were the, the basis of my first year in business. And wow. um, and from there, uh, I had a high school friend uh, who was an accountant, uh, and he says, hey, uh, there's a building. He says, I think we could maybe redevelop, uh, which became Spafford Square in the 300 block of East State Street. And uh, he says, there's this thing called historic tax credits. Um, he says, I think we can bring some investors in and uh, we ended up bringing in uh, 32 investors at $10,000 a piece. Okay. Uh, he had the connections with, um, you know, with that, with his accounting business, and uh, we were off and running. And uh, it was a million two to, to renovate the building, working with First National Bank at the time. And, and that was really one of the first things to really to get off the ground. And, um, you know, we were a little bit of ahead of our time. Um, but I think it was uh, exciting uh, to see, you know, how that unfolded. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, what's the pushback? I remember when I would talk to uh, people in construction, they'd say it's so much easier just to build a new building. Because if you get in these old buildings and you start getting in the walls, you don't know what you're going to find. I mean, so was that was that the big problem initially trying to convince these people to re- redo yes. these buildings? <clears throat> That's always been the problem and it continues to be the problem. You know, I think that um, you know one of the things that uh, we find about old building old buildings, and I think part of my passion is is that um, you know it's that uh, the history of it and the people that put their time and effort to build it. Um, you know, back in, uh, when you take a look at, uh, you know, the 1880s or the 1920s, you know, and Rockford had a tremendous building boom in the 20s and all the, the quality um, that was there. And, and it wasn't about being cheap or economical. It was about how can I build a building that represents who I am in terms of the quality of our business, um, the legacy that I want to leave. Yeah. And during the Depression, we lost that entirely uh, here in Rockford. And, uh, and I feel that we still had the vestiges of that um, um, depression in people's minds. It's part of their DNA. Um, you know, and I thought, 
um, you know, when I was in high school that uh, my generation was going to help change that. And um, and I find that they're talking the same way some of their parents did. And it's like, uh, you know, thank goodness I didn't fall into that trap. But it's, uh, it's one of those things where uh you know you get a lot more back from these older buildings and i think we're seeing that now in rockford where we're seeing that people are appreciating the, the history and the architecture and the stories that go with those buildings i was going to ask i mean it's taken you a long time but now you're trendy isn't that weird yes uh, yes thank goodness <laughs> um, but i do think that it's a national phenomena you might call it um you know when people uh, you know even over in europe you know people say wow what a great bunch of buildings and well we have the same we have a similar stock here but we don't appreciate it right. um you know we have that uh, disposable mentality of well if it's not usable anymore we just store it away like a can of pop and uh and I think it's that mentality that we've kind of marketed to and built into our psyche that I think, um, you know, this newer generation is beginning to appreciate, uh, well, let's step back from that kind of thinking and we need to be more sustainable. And I think that sustainability is not only, um, you know, about, you know, the greenness of things, but it's also about uh, retaining some of our built uh, environment and being more appreciative of the legacy that those buildings left us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're a pretty prominent figure here in the in the Rockford area. Everybody seems to know Gary Gary Anderson uh, because you've made such a such a mark. Uh, I, I think because you've got this mindset from that 11 year old kid who's just like wandering around a building that he probably shouldn't be in, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> then any more would have been fenced off, and you're like yes. someone would have come out and nabbed you. Yes. <laughs> Uh, you you kind of you're doing the same thing. I mean, that's kind of your heartbeat now to look at these older buildings. That that East Side Center, um, and unfortunately for our viewers, we don't have a picture of it. But what 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 time? What kind of period of time was that that you were investing in that? That was 1971, 72. Okay, um, long long time ago. Long time ago, and then. You know, when we did Spafford Square in 84, and then uh, in 85, 86, um, you know, Stewart Square um, came up, DJ Stewart, and J.C. Penney was on the block to be auctioned off. And then I went down there to, you know, say, well, maybe there's some developers that are going to be interested in buying this building uh, and this auction, and maybe we can hook up with them. Well, as it turned out, the only guy bidding was a demolition contractor uh, who was going to scrap it. And... Um, so I was thinking, I can't let that happen to this building. Yeah. And uh, the bidding, I think, started off at a half a million. Well, it got down. Um, they kept lowering the price. Started out at ten thousand dollars, and uh, and I jumped in and I thought, boy, this is crazy. Um, and uh, you know, when I came home, as it turned out to be, I think uh, I ended up at sixty thousand um, dollars to buy a hundred and forty thousand square foot building, and uh, right out the state in Maine. And I thought, oh, boy, was this crazy. I didn't even told my wife that uh, this is what we just did. And you're still, you're, <laughs> are you still married? Uh, yes, we okay, are. Just uh, just wonderfully. And uh, and my business partner at the time, um, Terry Hodges, uh, you know, said, we can do this. I, we can raise that money. And we raised, I think, $225,000 um, in a couple weeks. Um, to um, you know, become basically a holding company, go find a developer, and uh, here was the vision that we ended up ultimately creating for the building uh, that you do see today. Um, but I think one of the things that uh, we learned uh, right there at the auction of what we were really buying, you know, was um, 
Uh, it had like 30 owners. The hospital had it, mm. um, all these trustees. Um, it was on leased land. Um, and uh, come to find out, there was a lot of properties downtown that were, you know, the buildings were, did not come with the, with the land. And, uh, you know, again, part of the, the issues here of why didn't Rockford redevelop and, um, you know, there's another whole story in itself. But I think that um, it was part of that learning curve and an understanding what were we really buying here. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ultimately bought it for, I think, $93,000 after all the negotiations and, uh, um, you know, and all the things that the bank really didn't tell us at the auction um, that uh, <laughs> we had to do. So, um, but it was um, a wonderful thing. And I think um, ultimately we ended up finding, um, you know, uh, John Frieden Sons to uh, help redevelop the building. And uh, we ended up pulling a tenant in. We were negotiating all of that. Blue Cross, Blue Shield was huge. Um, the, the mayor at the time was very helpful with his friendships with the, the chairman of the board of Blue Cross um, uh, and Matt Cicero. So it was all these things that kind of came together um, that ultimately, you know, started the renaissance for our downtown. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think, you know, when I look back as to what happened, you know, when this thing, uh, you know, we lost a lot of momentum. And uh, the city, you know, started treating, you know, developers as robbers and thieves. And uh, and I think um, that kind of just turned me off from doing any more for about 10 years. Hmm. And um, but then, uh, you know, we started again um, really after the um, 2000 um, and was really with Garrison School. Um, mm-hmm. And when uh, Larry Morrissey and Chandler Anderson came into my office one evening to say, hey, we want to redevelop the Garrison School. And I thought, you know, looking at these guys, I used to be like them in terms of the fire um, and passion. Yeah. And it's like, I'm this burned out cinder here. Um, <laughs> what happened to me? Um, the excitement that they brought to the table. And literally from that night on, um, that changed the rest of my life. Really? And, uh, you know, so I've got to give them credit for, you know, getting me back and on track. And I think i um, certainly re-excited about what the opportunities were with our old uh, buildings here. So you turned Garrison School into, uh, so the school's still there, but it's been divvied up into apartments, and then you added on some units around, yes. right? Okay. Yes. And to, um, you know, at the time was that, uh, you know, doing some upscale things there. The building had some wonderful qualities. The attic was spectacular. I mean, that was a cathedral in itself, and how can we incorporate that into the building? And and basically, we ended up doing two-story units, you know, using the lower level. Then we kind of flipped the be- the bedrooms upside down, um, and uh, we did the same thing with the gymnasium of uh, looking at uh, the public, you know, more public space of the house should be uh, looking up at the rafters and the vaulted ceilings. So um, it was really a new concept and um, a new thought process, but um, what cool space. And I think... Uh, so these were the kind of the drivers that uh, we see today in terms of our loft development, and um, which ultimately led into um, you know our uh, master planning work for the, the Prairie Street Brew House in 2005. And um, you kind of developed a niche in yes, a way. Yes, we did, and uh, you know, and I think as we looked at it more and more, was you know we have the vision, I guess, but uh, okay, we, we need to put the dollars and cents to this thing. And at the time, we started developing, you know, really the financials, the pro formas, um, because we were having a lot of people that would come into the office with all these dreams, uh, but no business sense whatsoever. Right. 
And uh, it was just like, we need to connect the dots here and uh, develop something here that people can really understand. And I think, um, you know, over probably the next four or five years, we ended up developing that financial modeling um, that's really the basis of all the things that we do. And, and it's created really a market niche for us um, that we're just not architects, you know, yeah. that we bring a more complete package. How often do you walk away from a project? Like somebody comes in and they have this great dream, but like you said, they don't really know what they're doing. So how often do you have to sit there and go, you don't have your ducks in a row? Um, I think that uh, could be 50% of the time. Um, but there are projects that sit there for maybe five, six, seven, eight years that come back to life. Um, I never throw the file away. <laughs> it still sits on a section of my big desk of these projects that are still on hold that still exist. And, um, and it's amazing when you get a call to say, hey, you know, well, I know I got all this stuff on this thing. I've got uh, even some drawings or sketches um, and even some numbers that we looked at back in those days and, uh, you know, how can we update them? And so, um, you know, it's never done. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the excitement. Yeah. Well, like Amrock, so, so in Rockford, uh, this old manufacturing building, after decades, is finally being turned into a convention center. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, these, these buildings are around forever. It's just a matter of getting the right, people in place at the right times well in the you know in the ziok amrock uh, building you know there was um you know a group of us called the friends of ziok and um you know and when the the mayor had told us um that they were going to tear it down for three million dollars that uh you know we just found that to be unacceptable um but i do think that the thing is is that when when you end up saying we're going to save a building um you better also bring somebody else to the table to really save it right. um you know you're not going to be just a building hugger and hope somebody comes <laughs> at the table um and i think that was our whole premise um there was that uh you know for a building that was kind of even discarded by the preservation agency uh, is not being worthy um that when we did all the research and everything else into the knitting history that this building indeed was quali qualified um, as a historic structure, which would qualify it for the historic tax credits were of a huge financial tool. And that has you know, driven all the other things that have occurred downtown here is, is that uh, we have this wishful desire to preserve and protect a building and repurpose it, but we didn't really have the financial tools up until the state tax credit came along. Uh, that drove the Prairie Street Brew House. We were the first ones to do that, um, you know, with the River Edge program. And then subsequently to be able to sell that to potential developers. Um, when we ended up putting our list to, um, you know, one getting on the register, but then the next step was to, well, let's go find a, a developer for this. So we went out nationwide search. Uh, we found about 25 that did that kind of work in an old building, old, uh, um, that did hotels um, and mixed-use developments. And because uh, we originally thought about half of the building was going to be residential and half a boutique hotel. And uh, so uh, on the, the sixth one was, um, uh, and we'd spent days with a lot of these developers, um, you know, bringing them in, you know, uh, really uh, um, dining and uh, whining and dining them to kind of show them about yeah. Rockford. And uh, Gorman came in and said, hey, I like this building. I want to do it. Give me an option. And uh, 
Uh, and then uh, we ended up going to council, and I'll tell you, you know, no one really wanted to do this. And uh, but we lobbied all the aldermen individually to kind of say, you got to do this, mm-hmm. give it a chance. And then um, we ultimately, um, you know, made that happen. And it was a just an uphill battle all the way. And I think uh, even when we got Gorman in, um, you know, they decided uh, we had a uh, he had a hotel. Uh, guy there, a consultant, and um, and the guy, you know, we walked him through the building, and he was looking at how he could cover up ever all the details, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> and it was like, this isn't the guy here. We need to get some information here. So, um, you know, part of our team went out there um, and contacted everybody, all the businesses within, I think, a mile and a half of downtown from that site. And we found that there were thirty thousand uh, room nights annually. That they wanted their people to be in, in a downtown location because they were really tired of going out to the far east side and spending an hour of travel time that was really valuable for their clients that they were serving. Yeah. And um, so when we ended up giving that to Gorman to say, I think you need another consultant, but by the way, um, why don't you follow up on all of these? Here's the contact information. These are the numbers. Um, they came back and said, you were right. Um, and so it was part of that grassroots effort to kind of say, you know, we're not going to take no for an answer here. Uh, we believe in what we're doing, um, and this is the financial considerations you need to do um, and understanding and uh, the pro forma and putting this project together. And I think the other thing uh, that Gary Gorman brought to the table was the uh, the EB-5, um, we knew that no local bank was going to really uh, finance that whole big number. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that uh, when we found out um, through Marge Beavers, uh, who worked at the airport at the time, uh, about the EB-5 funding, um, that this was, you know, really another huge um, uh, piece of the financial piece. Can you explain EB-5 funding? EB-5 funding is where foreign investors come in um, to provide uh, half a million dollars. Um, They get a green card um, to uh, come uh, to this country and work. Uh, whether it's their kids or whatever, but um, you know it, they raise thirty million dollars, um, and that's money you don't have to go to the bank and find. Um, and uh, so the um, besides the the forty five percent tax credit, which uh, what that means is is that. Um, you know, uh, for all the cost of construction that you can end up taking uh, that, you know, 45% of that, really the net's around 40, 39%, somewhere in there, um, of that project cost uh, that somebody would say, I would like to be an investor instead of paying the federal government for that tax or the state government, that they plow that equity into uh, the project. Uh, And that's really been not only the drive for that building, but all the renovation, just about, um, I'd say 90% of it now, um, has driven all what's going on downtown. So correct me if I'm wrong. So if I'm an investor now, instead of just giving my money to the government, I'm buying part of a project. Yes. So I could make money on For five years. For five years, yes. And and you can also pay maybe uh, 90 cents on the dollar uh, to that so you can reduce your tax burden, but you're also being part of a great opportunity mm-hmm. to save a historic property and to um, you know drive a project uh, successfully. That's awesome. So one of the, th- one of the things, um, getting off of some of the redevelopment stuff that we've been talking about, you've made such an impact 
uh, you, you've mentioned a handful of things. You talk about, you know, the grassroots efforts. And I'm thinking grassroots tends to have this connotation of just a bunch of people getting together. And you said like building hugger. And I thought that was really funny uh, because there are well-meaning people who are totally yeah. incompetent um, to do things sometimes, but you're not that person. You, you have, uh, you're an experienced individual, this idea of like, you went around research and talked to all the businesses in the, you know, in a mile, mile and a half area. That's not, you're, you're not just making stuff up. You're saying, no, I need to, I need to generate some real, real numbers because otherwise you're just up against opinions. And so we need to bring the research and that research should then guide our decision-making. You didn't come to that by accident. So one, one of the things I'm, you've, you've had, had, a, had a handful of, I think, pivotal moments, it seems, mm -hmm. or leveraged moments yes. um, that you figured out how to put to use. And I think everybody everybody has those pivotal or leveraged moments in their life, but that sometimes they don't know what to do with them, right? And so they just become kind of the same person, just extending the life. Uh, but you, you've you've grown and succeeded and come to a, le a level of influence that eleven year old kid didn't know probably he was going to have. Could we could we unwind this a little bit and give us those pivotal moments because they've come up a little bit from that 11 year old kid who has this dream and he's looking around going and he has an appreciation maybe not even a dream but an appreciation like my gosh how did this all happen and how does this come together that's that's the first it seems pivotal moment and then and then you go to college and you're and you're studying architecture or civil engineering and you realize that's not for you but architecture is right and then, and then the next point was you, you're talking about the East was that the East side center mm -hmm. where you yeah. thought I'm going to get into redevelopment right. and that kind of wasn't, you learned a lot from that it's, experience, yeah. which you then carried forward. I'm certain, you know, 40 years, 50 years later into new things. Uh, what, where, where are those other, those other points, <clears throat> those pivotal or leveraged moments? You know, I think, you know, and I've been blessed to, you know, experience some of the things that I have and in, in how. Your entire life sometimes circles around, you know, and uh, when I was growing up in Churchill Park, I played in that Keith Creek day after day in the yeah. summers. Um, you know, I could say I you know just about every square inch of that place and uh, the tunnel underneath 20th Street and uh, just, um, you know, all the things I did as a child, you know, and exploring, you know, uh, the universe for me at the time, uh, even riding our bikes to Belvedere at 11 years old and uh, <laughs> playing, swimming in the Kishwaukee River. And um, so it was one of those childhoods and I told my, my mom how fantastic it was and, uh, you know, how she gave me the, the, the the leash to kind of do our thing but uh, we had some other two buddies that were the same age as my brother and I and so we were able to do that and um, but I think that um, you know the work that we're doing in terms of preservation of even commercial properties um, you know and transform Rockford um, I know kind of came about as to you know let's do this grassroots again uh, and getting people excited and, and I remember walking into my first planning meeting for transform and and I thought oh boy here we go again you know the same old same old and uh, we're not going to get anything done and I walked in that room I remember it was over at the chamber's offices um, and uh, I, I, and it was just like okay here's 12 people around this table that think exactly like I do you know, that just flipped a switch, um, is that I need to be part of this movement. This means something. Um, and I think to see, you know, when 1,500 people walked into the Coronado, you know, to kind of say, let's kick this thing off. I was like, okay, I'm with this all the way. And and I think uh, being part of that planning group, um, 
was pretty exciting, but we had lots of great discussions about where things went wrong in our community and the planning aspect and and having been around for a long time uh, to see all of these things that you know, we weren't really doing and following through on like we should have, like other communities have done, other yeah. successful communities. And so um, when the, we ended up talking about neighborhoods, um, it was just like, uh, we need to do something. And then I think at the time, you know, that spoke was having some disagreement about where to go with this thing. And um, and uh, Tom Gendron and Mike Shablatsky came in and said, hey, we need some help. Um, and I think for what we've been doing now with uh, the great neighborhoods, um, and going out there and doing what we've done now over the last year and a half of really getting into um, where Transform can touch every doorstep. And uh, and I think that it's one of those things where we are uh, – I'm excited and more passionate than I've ever been um, because of what this is. And I think the other thing, and going back to Keith Creek, um, you know, back in 2004, we put, a, put together a vision on that. Um, and then they had the great floods of uh, six and seven um, that devastated my old neighborhood and yeah. um, and the house that uh, we first uh, lived in when we were first married. My wife and I uh, was demolished, and mm. uh, um, and that's where I did my first uh, crazy project um, in the bachelor pad at the time. And um, and it's like when you go by there, it's like there's this emptiness. Yeah. Um, that I think uh, when we start to see all these uh, things go down um, and how neighborhoods are kind of torn apart by some things. But in that case, is there an opportunity there um, to redevelop that neighborhood in a different kind of way um, that maybe should have never been developed in the first place because there was a problem there back in the yeah. 20s and 30s. And um, so um, it's kind of, as I say, it's kind of come full circle from the standpoint of now with Zion Development um, has got a planner um, through a grant through the VISTA. Um, and, uh, you know, being able to see how that vision now can be, come to fruition and to be a part of that, that also ties into the great neighborhoods and working with that neighborhood. So, um, you know, the serendipityness of all of this um, is kind of one of those exciting things for me personally. Yeah. Um, but also, how can we end up improving all of our neighborhoods? Um, you know, and we ended up uh, doing the the asset mapping for uh, 17 neighborhoods so far, which is an important discovery tool for our neighborhoods. And I think, uh, you know, we pretty much have done the whole, uh, I'll say, all the, uh, the neighborhoods in each quadrant of the city. We've done a lot. And the passion and love for their community is so incredible um, that, you know, I find that to be there's, there's the foundational piece of our community because there's people here that care, mm -hmm. that want to make a difference, and want to improve things. And, you know, and that got to me, you know, you know, all of this stuff. And then when the land bank came up to become a trustee uh, opportunity, it's like, oh, my gosh, I don't need another. <laughs> <laughs> don't need another thing to do. <laughs> I don't need another thing to do. But on the other hand, how important this yeah. is to all the other things that we're working on yeah. uh, that we can provide our, our knowledge and expertise um, and the importance of neighborhoods, and and I think when we ended up doing some work on the EAV, of um, you know what's wrong, and that was driven by, you know, uh, you know the, the on our commercial buildings, uh, and I'll use First National Bank, uh, which is Chase Bank on East State Street, was worth six million dollars in 1960, hmm. and you know the thing was sold for about three hundred thousand dollars, and it's yeah. just like. Uh, what the heck happened to all of our property values and how we've driven them into the ground 
and how we've kind of devalued ourselves and then really looking at what have other communities like our size have done uh, and they are far more protective of those property values than we are. Um, we've given away the store, and um, when we've lost a billion dollars in our EAV, we wonder why our EAV stands for what again? Um, the uh, equalized assessed value. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that you know, in trying to raise an awareness uh, in the community with our, you know, I'll say community leaders, because um, the EAV is how ta- is part of the whole tax. Uh, process yes right? and so the lower a building's eav the lower they have to pay in taxes but that sh- that burdens gets shifted off to homeowners yeah what happens is is that we have now um, created an atmosphere where the commercial and industrial side used to pay uh, the majority of our taxes or a good portion of our taxes a healthy community looks like 70 30 um, we are like 93% residential. The burden is entirely on the resident. And, and that's why we're one of the 20 highest tax-rated cities yes. Yes, in the So country. for you know, what we thought we were doing a good thing, we actually destroyed the basis of investment that really drives you know, um, value in our community. Uh, when we don't have people investing in, you know, we're wondering why we don't have a whole lot of new buildings. Um, and when you take a look at what's happened over the last 10 years, well, the crash, everybody had that problem, but they've recovered. Uh, we haven't done that yet. And I think when we take a look at our residential neighborhoods, uh, we've got some neighborhoods that are still 20% under the, the 2008 rate. Uh, in terms of, you know, we're upside down here. Uh, so we need to do something about it and how do we fix it? And you know, and as I, I equate it to, you know, uh, sometimes this, we're going to AA here. Um, we need to understand we have a problem. Yeah. So how are we going to address it? And there's been uh, a lack, I think, um, by all of us to accept that, um, that, well, we don't want to turn people off uh, to even any more investment. But, yes, we need to do that. We need to be honest with ourselves so that we can be honest to them about investing. I mean, these were the same issues that we brought up to Gorman. Yeah. Um, that, by the way, we want you to invest in a $77 million project here, but um, <laughs> by the way, it's only going to be worth $10,000 at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that conversation with yeah. Gary Gorman. He went through the roof. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's what our tax assessor did. And, right. uh, uh, and it was just like, this is wrong. Right. Um, so. so do you have, is, is it just a natural curiosity that leads you down these paths? Um, yes, um, and I think the other thing, what makes our community tick? You know, what drives it? And then I think is in our business, the, you know, the whole financial picture um, has really become very clear to us and to, you know, have our staff all understand that and to get our clients to understand that um, has been very um been a wonderful experience. Yeah, because it doesn't seem like you're in it for the money. No, not at all. And, um, you know, and I think the amount of time that we spend in our, our community efforts is... Uh, Again, I mean, it's easier to design and build a new building. Yes. Right. And, um, but I do think that, um, you know, making that difference has been uh, huge. And uh, now to see others understanding that has been very fulfilling. And, yes, it's been all worth that. Um, and you've branched out. We were talking before we got in here. I mean, you're doing projects now in Monroe. Where? Atlanta. Where were the other places? Um, well, we're looking at uh, some stuff over in Iowa. And so mm-hmm. we're in four states right now. And, um, you know, sometimes you wonder how things kind of come into the door. Um, but it's all about relationships. And, yeah. um, you know, and I think that um, 
you know, I think we're one of the worst marketers in the world. But on the other hand, you know, our work says all about who we are. So that word somehow gets out there. And, um, you know, and I think that uh, that's the fun part of it. And, and creating really long-term relationships. Um, that's, uh, we've got clients that I've worked with for 30 years. Um, so do you find yourself evaluating a lot of, a lot of the time? Like I, I did this today and then you kind of reevaluating it and, and learning from it tomorrow. Yes. Um, and I, I, you know, and it's like even looking at projects that didn't get off the ground or, yeah. What could we have done differently? You um, strike me as a guy who would ruminate on those things a little bit to learn the lesson to yes. figure out how to leverage it. Yes. Um, and I think the other thing is also looking and learning from others, um, you know, that either did a development, could have been done. We always can say to ourselves, well, I could have done that better. Um, but, you know, there are other constraints that kind of come into play. And uh, so you make the best of it. And uh you know, and I look at our Prairie Street brew house, there was a few details that I would have loved to have done. But, um, you know, as it turned out, you know, uh, it worked out great. Yeah. Um, it's not like Star Wars where you could just take the computer and then add some le- scenes later, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what Lucas did with the movie later on. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's a, that's a lesson that I had in, um, in one of the first firms I worked for. Yeah, you know, they did this beautiful rendering of this building and the... And the, the thing had this ugly penthouse on the top of it in the rendering. And he says, well, just erase that. Do we, we, and it's like, there was for 30 years until they tore the thing down. It's just like, it bugged the heck out of me that how could we as architects do that and just ignore the mechanicals? And that, that drove another passion of mine about uh, HVAC systems and making sure that... Um, you know, yep. that's an integral, that's 50% of the project. Oh, okay, that's a rabbit hole that we don't see. <laughs> yeah. I know a little bit about HVAC guy here, right here. <laughs> <laughs> don't talk to me about that, HVAC. <laughs> That'll be another podcast. So what would you, uh, what would you tell 11-year-old Gary Anderson walking around? where he shouldn't have been walking around. Well, I think follow your passions and, and dreams. Um, you know, and we have students come in that, um, um, you know, want to job shadow for a day to find out what's architecture all about. And, um, you know, some do or go on, others don't. But, you know, I think the, the most important thing um, is that it's not about the money. Um, it's about what you enjoy doing. Um, and I felt I've never worked a day in my life because I have had such joy with the work that I do. And to pass that on to others to say that, you know, follow your dreams. Um, and uh, what you feel in your heart um, is the most important thing to you because you will be the happiest person your entire life. And I've found so many of my friends that they weren't happy with their work. And it's just like, oh, man, um, thank goodness I didn't have, you know, that situation. Um, and, and that's why I continue to work today because I don't think I could have more fun being retired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the What Works podcast. This has been a real pleasure getting to know you. Uh, and certainly our listeners in the Rockford area, I think, have learned quite a bit. Uh, and then these lessons, I find it always fascinating to hear, you know, where does a person start? What are those pivotal pivotal moments? And how does a person become who they are today mm-hmm. uh, when it could have gone so many other ways? Yeah. Yes. Uh, life is full of stories. It is. Well, thanks for being on the What Works Podcast. Thank you. The What Works Podcast is a production of Thinker Ventures. Learn more at thinkerventures.com.